Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is part of our series of podcasts called Agenda 2021, where we're going to try to take a look at some of the policy uh, challenges and Uh, ideas that ought to be put in place in the event that we have a new president of the United States in January. And we're extremely fortunate to have with us again, uh, General James Clapper. General Clapper served as the Director of National Intelligence. Prior to that, he served as the Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, had a distinguished military career, uh, and is one of the country's leading national security experts of any kind, Welcome, General. Thanks, David, for having me again. Well, no, it's a, it's a great That's pleasure. A very generous introduction. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I wish that we were able to discuss uh, things that were a little bit more upbeat than we are. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me is that a couple of weeks ago, we learned that the President of the United States uh, had been aware for some time, the U.S. had been aware for perhaps 18 months, the President had been aware certainly since February, Uh, of the fact that uh, Russians were providing bounties to the Taliban uh, for uh, 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 troops, either U.S. troops or allied troops that were killed. Um, Shocking as this was, uh, more shocking was that the president didn't seem to do anything about it when he was first informed by it. Uh, about it, uh, d- seemed to continue to reward Russia, even in the wake of it. Uh, and uh, that included uh, a suggestion that uh, Russia be re-invited to the G7 to make it the G8, which was a big win for them. Also, in the same time period, we shouldn't forget, the President of the United States uh, announced that he was going to be pulling troops out of Germany, another big win for the, for the Russians. Well, the president first said he didn't hear anything about it, but it's been two weeks. And in the two weeks since everyone knew about it, he still hasn't done anything. He still hasn't said anything critical of the Russians. He still hasn't taken any action. I'm interested in your reaction. Well, uh, as somebody uh, who was a Cold War warrior for uh, 30 years plus, I, I don't understand. It's a mystery to me why this deference to Russia and uh, to Putin personally. I, I just I don't understand. I, there's all kinds of speculation as to why that is. But this does not serve uh, the interest of the United States well uh, at all. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a, an abject opponent of the United States and our value system and everything we stand for. And he has successfully pushed the envelope uh, and exerted himself 
and in turn, uh, in, in Russia's interests, you know, he has this great illusion of a vision of Russia as a great power. And so when he uh, does the things he does and gets away with them, uh, you know, that just uh, enhances his stature. And, and he, he's, he's clearly the alpha dog in, in, in that relationship. And why that's so, I, I don't understand. Um, but it certainly doesn't serve the interests of the United States very well. And apart from the uh, situation with uh, the bounties is uh, equally disturbing to me is uh, just that uh, unilateral, without any consultation apparently with anybody, pulling uh, all, you know 9,500 troops out of, out of Germany, which I think is uh, a terrible, uh, well, from a messaging standpoint and nothing else, it's terrible. Terrible in, in terms of, yeah, as you point out, another win for Putin. Uh, yeah, about a, about a third of the troops that we've we've got there. Um, interestingly, as a story has 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 broken recently today uh, uh, from uh, a place called Just Security, which is run by guy we do a podcast with once a week, Ryan Goodman. And in that story, it was revealed that. Um, from mid-2017 into 2018, Pentagon became increasingly confident in intelligence that showed that the Kremlin was arming the Taliban. And again, the president's response to this was extraordinary. In the first case, he decided not to confront Putin about supplying arms to the group. In the second case, he uh, embraced Putin overtly and repeatedly, including in the midst of that story, the summit in Helsinki. And then behind the scenes, Trump directed the CIA to share intelligence information on counterterrorism with the Kremlin, with nothing in exchange for it. In other words, he rewarded them publicly, he rewarded them privately, he even used US classified intelligence as one of the rewards. And I'm just wondering what your reaction to that is. Well, uh, I too uh, was uh, a part of a long line of people that, that have uh, attempted to exchange intelligence information with the Russians. I, I did that as under the guidance of the Secretary of Defense, uh, Bill Perry, and uh, then DCI, uh, Bob Gates, Director of Central Intelligence, Bob Gates, uh, to engage with the Russians. And invariably, then when I was Director of DIA and every, and every other involvement, been witness to where we tried to exchange intelligence information with the Russians, it, all, it always turned out to be a one-way street. We never got anything of substance uh, back from the Russians. And you, you would think we would in the case of, uh, particularly in the case of uh, terrorism, but it just it just never panned out. It's, I think it's uh, part of the Russian DNA uh, just not to uh, do anything to uh, share with the United States, uh, I just, they just can't do that, whether it's the Soviets or, or the Soviet version or, or, or the Russians uh, themselves. And the fact that they've, you know, supported the Taliban should not come as a big shock to people. And uh, uh, John McMickelson, uh, former commander of our forces in Afghanistan years ago, uh, highlighted that publicly about how the uh, Russians were providing weaponry uh, to the Taliban. And, and the reason, of course, is very plausible because 
they want to maintain a foothold, a toehold in Afghanistan, maintain influence there, particularly in, t- in anticipation of our leaving. So, over the course of the past three years, say, if the Russians had a list of priorities, they might be um, weaken NATO, either by weakening the alliance or by actually reducing the number of troops in the alliance, uh, weaken the standing and the functionality of NATO by reducing the U.S. role in NATO, um, gaining bigger foothold in Syria, where uh, they want to use as a base for the Middle East, uh, continuing to maintain and expand their foothold um, in Afghanistan, as we've just discussed, um, uh, gain in world stature, perhaps weaken some of the international institutions that have been a thorn in their side, uh, perhaps weaken some of the deals that have been a, a lid on their ability to expand, including, for example, the INF deal. Um, and every single one of these, which would have had to have been among their very top objectives, has been achieved. And every single one of these has been achieved with the assistance of the President of the United States and to the detriment of the United States. Now, earlier you said, I don't want to speculate on why he would do it. But, you know, at a certain point, doesn't a pattern of behavior become um, so troubling that why doesn't matter? Well, that's, that's true. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's the, uh, the outward behavior and the damage done to, uh, you know, the standing of the United States. And, you know, you just ticked off uh, um, you know, a series of wins, uh, uh, pluses for uh, Vladimir Putin as he looks at it. And uh, th- th- this is not, you know, not good for the United States. And so we're, we're sort of uh, abrogating our uh, traditional leadership position that we've occupied since the end of World War II. And by ne- denigrating uh, international organizations, whether, whether it's NATO or WHO, uh, that ha- all cumulatively has the impact of minimizing, reducing the U.S. stature, which is in uh, position of leadership, which is a great concern to a lot of our friends and allies, whom the president uh, roundly insults um, and treats with disdain while, um, you know, seeking favor, sucking up to uh, uh, despots, um, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Russia or, or even at, at one point China. Now China's on the bad boy list, but uh, he was very, very solicitous of, of China, even during the you know, early phases of the, the pandemic, while he was still in denial. So these are all bad, uh, bad omens. Uh, I, you know, we could probably recover from them, but uh, it, it has been very damaging to the stature and the position of the United States as, as a free world leader. Well, let me come back to that in a moment. If, if you, in, in running an intelligence agency, saw an official of the United States government um, consistently subordinating U.S. interests to the interests of an enemy, how would you treat it? Well, uh, quite negatively, uh, I, I guess. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not in the government and couldn't be uh, in this administration. And so, to me, it's a it, it's a very serious concern. I, I I will never forget the Helsinki uh, news conference, where um, essentially the president accepted the word of Vladimir Putin, who's standing there lying, who's lying to him, uh, and 
rejecting the uh, high economist position of, of the uh, U.S. intelligence community, or at least four key components of it, with respect to the Russian interference in our election in 2016. And I, I was dumbfounded uh, when I, uh, I, I saw that. And that, unfortunately, is kind of emblematic of uh, uh, the president's uh, uh, position with respect to Russia. Uh, it's it's incredible and and quite it's incredible, not stunning anymore, but disturbing. Uh, yeah, well, the fact that we have seemed to have grown accustomed to it is as disturbing as all of that. You know, the, the think think in the past two weeks since this story broke. You know, there have been stories about COVID. There's been stories about statues. There have been stories about all these other things, and this has sort of faded into the background again. And America's just said, okay. You know, bounties on American troops. Okay, that's bad, but what are we going to do? You know, I, it's 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 kind of remarkable to me what we can grow accustomed to. Uh, exactly, and and uh, and that is, uh, I think, a, a fundamental problem. You know, uh, with the, this administration, uh, so we've gotten so jaded uh, to um, the behavior that we've sort of. Uh, Acquiesced in it, we could be become to acquiesce in it, uh, and uh, nothing surprises or, or, or shocks anymore. And that in itself is uh, is a is a, a bad trend. It really is. So uh, let me try before we turn to a little bit more forward-looking stuff. I'd like to do a bit of a thought experiment, if it's okay. You spent much of your career evaluating governments around the world. Uh, evaluating trends within those governments, trying to see whether they were strengthening or weakening, what what the meaning of the trends were. Now you have the United States for three and a half years. We had the behavior of the president we've just talked about. Also, in the course of the three and a half years, um, you've had um, uh, economic setbacks that now have us in the middle of the biggest uh, uh, job depression that we've had since the depression, a major recession. Uh, we have COVID, which um, has already resulted in the death of almost 135,000 Americans, likely will result in the deaths of 200,000, um, uh, a total of 200,000 by election day, maybe 250 or 300,000 by the end of the year. Uh, public health disaster of a scale that we haven't seen since 1918. You have social division and unrest in the streets, um, a real polarization within the country politically to the point that it's very difficult for the Congress to work. Um, and you have dysfunction at the top at a level that we've we've never quite seen it. If you were looking at a country like that, what would your assessment be? Um, uh, and would you think, well, this could be easily turned around or this is going to have a lasting consequence for that country? Well, I uh, uh, had occasion to be reminded recently of... Uh, Appearance that I made at uh, the Aspen uh, Forum in, I think it was July of 16, in which I um, said that the United States was starting to exhibit some of the characteristics of instability that we look at 
in other uh, foreign countries. Uh, CIA particularly uh, watches this very carefully and, and, and methodically and rigorously and has you know, certain criterion for uh, you know, making the unstable list. Well, the United States is starting to exhibit, ha has been exhibiting these very characteristics for, for some time now. And when you think about it, the, you know, the influenza epidemic, epidemic of 1918, the, uh, the depression of 1929, the, all the racial strife of, say, 1968, which I lived through as, you know, Vietnam era veteran. Um, and now, uh, and all this uh, political divisiveness, well, all these things are all piling on us all at once. You know, we've gotten through these things one at a time in the past. So scale, if you scale this and compare it to other countries with, uh, you know, the tax on the rule of law, tax on uh, assaults on uh, an independent media, assaults on our election system, whether foreign or domestic, uh, we're, we're kind of in a, in a dark place right now. Um, you know, Depending on the outcome of the election, I, yeah, I think, or is it, or is it recoverable? Yes, I believe it is. Now, if the president wins a second term, uh, boy, all bets are off, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, then you're talking about uh, a permanent damage to the United States and its form of government and its system as as we've known it. Well, let's let's explore that for one second. Um, a lot of damage has been done, as we've just noted. Uh, most shocking to me, I guess, maybe because I'm a kind of a foreign policy guy, is that we've had a consensus in the United States for 75 years, Democrats and Republicans, about the kind of world we wanted to see. We wanted to build international institutions. We wanted to make the world uh, a place where disputes could be resolved um, um, via those institutions and consistent with the rule of law. We wanted to promote democracy. We wanted to promote opportunity and markets for people around the world. We wanted to do so by building something that no other country had ever built in the history of the world, which was a network of alliances that stretched around the globe. And systematically, the president of the United States has undermined all of that, not casually, not due to neglect, but systematically, one after another has gone after all of those things. Well, that's what we've seen in term one. In term two, what would worry you the most? Well, I think uh, the, the, the one thing that, to the extent that there is the presence inhibited at all, I think the one thing has been, uh, you know, re-election. And if he is re-elected, there'll be virtually no inhibition because he, you know, he pretty much cowed the Congress, particularly the, the Republicans in, in the Congress. Now, and so if, if Republicans maintain control of the, uh, one, at least one house of the Congress, so I, I, yeah, I think you'll see uh, the performance in the first term on steroids in the second term. And so all the, the, the negative things that we talked about, um, assault on the rule of law, assault on free and independent media, et cetera, et cetera, uh, will be uh, accelerated and amplified. So I, I, I view that with uh, great trepidation, great concern. 
In fact, I, I view, I'm very concerned about the conduct of the election itself and how, how that uh, unfolds and whether uh, and if uh, the president uh, is defeated, particularly if it's a, a narrow defeat, uh, you know, will he regard that as illegitimate, as rigged? He's, he's already kind of laying the groundwork for that, as he did in 2016. And uh, this is none of this is, you know, is good for the country. It just is. You think NATO could survive a second term? Well, I don't know if if um, I mean his, I think his instincts originally were to withdraw from NATO, and he, for whatever reason, was talked out of it. And uh, you know, I think I, I don't know. I, I, I think yeah, I do think NATO could survive as an alliance. I don't think it'll be nearly as strong uh, without U.S. presence, contributions, and most important, U.S. leadership. So let's turn uh, for the remaining uh, 10 or 15 minutes that we've got here to the, 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 the future in the event that the president did not win. Um, in the event that Joe Biden wins and, and, and we have a new regime in, in Washington. Uh, one area where the president has done uh, incalculable damage, in my estimation, is the area that you know best, and that's the intelligence community. Uh, he has put his own people in charge. Their mission has been not to provide the president with the best intelligence or to protect U.S. national security, but to protect the president politically and to provide him with the intelligence that he wants to hear. Um, this has caused people to leave these agencies. It has caused people, um, uh, uh, d d these, the, 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 the missions to become essentially perverted. Um, if you were advising a President Biden, you know, giving him sort of a to-do list for the intelligence community to help it back, to help it recover, what would it look like? Well, a couple things. One is... Uh, and I obviously I'm I'm probably biased here, but I believe that the uh, leadership of the intelligence community should be uh, should be uh, exercised by intelligence professionals, career professionals that have, that have served in, uh, in in the profession of intelligence and grown up in it, and uh, hopefully have headed, headed in at least one agency. So the first thing would be that. Uh, to point to uh, as DNI, uh, somebody that actually knows something about intelligence and, and has grown up in it. Now, there's an argument, I guess, for you know not doing that, but uh, I, I think that's much better to have somebody who is steeped in intelligence because I, I can attest the the job of DNI is a tough one to start with, and if you don't know anything about uh, intelligence to start with, and you're trying to learn the ABCs of it. As you go, it's pretty hard. I, I don't mean to inter interrupt, but just to, to, to add on what you're saying, there are not a lot of jobs in the United States government where there's actually, as part of the statute creating the job, the requirement that they have that experience. Right. And with the DNI, it's actually required. Ratcliffe doesn't have it, but you know, the, it's, it's, it's uh, contrary to the requirement. That's exactly right. There's a provision in, in what's called the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act that stipulates that the DNI should be one who is 
uh, steeped in national security or has expertise and, and experience in national security or, or words that effect. And, and that obviously wasn't, uh, that tenet wasn't followed, uh, at least in my mind. So I think the second thing is for um, the, if it's, uh, if Vice President Biden is elected president, to make very clear, publicly clear, that the traditional hallmark of the intelligence community of telling truth to power, which is something of a simplified bumper sticker, but it does connote the, the concept of truth to power, that there be an, 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 an independence uh, of the DNI and to enjoin the DNI to and the intelligence community at large to always present the unvarnished facts and assessments as best the intelligence community can come up with, understanding that intelligence is inherently always going to deal with uncertainty. And the objective there is to reduce the uncertainty uh, for a decision maker, whether the decision maker sitting in the Oval Office or if I can stress a metaphor, Oval Foxhole, the objective is the same. And uh, I think that's a, personally, I was considered a sacred public trust uh, that it was up to me to make sure that the president, and in my case, President Obama, got the, the unvarnished truth, which he insisted on, by the way, uh, to his great credit. So those are the two things I would do. Appoint a professional and, and reiterate um, the uh, importance of truth to power. What about the broader issues of national security? Um, the United States has ceded a lot of ground over this time to China, some of which they would have gained anyway as a consequence of their growth, some of which we, we may have lost as a consequence of errors that we've made in policy. Uh, obviously, some ground has been ceded to Russia, which, which I don't think they would have naturally come to. Um, uh, and the institutions on which we depend are in a shambles. They're in a shambles in part because of what Donald Trump has done. In part, the mission of NATO, the mission of the United Nations, the mission of the UN Security Council, the mission of, you know, the Quad in Asia, for example, all of these things have not really been updated or rethought for the world we face right now. So there's two challenges, right? One is the Trump challenge. One is the challenge of of the new reality we face. How would you, how would you recommend a president dealt with those? Well, I think that, I think he needs to think about, uh, first, you know, intelligence consume, is consumed with threats. So I think the first thing is to consider what are the, the primary threats? Well, uh, I had here before considered Russia as our greatest short-term threat but now that uh, Putin has extended his tenure as long as uh, 2036, I guess it's not so short term. Long term, clearly, it's China. You know, I was really struck by uh, FBI Director Chris Ray's recent presentation on the threat posed by China, profound threat posed by China. And, uh, you know, over almost half their counterintelligence cases are uh, Chinese and virtually every, all 56 field offices of the FBI have Chinese cases at the forefront. And, and then he went on to describe, which is not, not necessarily a new thing, is the uh, theft of our intellectual property uh, by the Chinese. Uh, so something has got to be done with that. Now, having said that, 
In the case of China, I, I think Russia is kind of intractable. But in the case of China, I still think there needs to be, you know, we need to figure out ways we can work with the Chinese on those areas where we can agree. I don't know what those are exactly. And that may be very hard, but I think we need to look for them. Anyway, and there's another set of threats, though, that are, uh, are not the traditional nation-state threats. And I refer specifically, uh, and this is controversial, obviously, to the threat posed by climate change, which has huge national security implications. And one of the offshoots of that, a cousin of that, is uh, the threat of pandemics. Now, these are not nation-state issues in that, you know, disease, climate change, they don't limit themselves to nation-state borders. So this is, and in my view, the United States is the, still the only country in the world that can lead against these profound national security threats of climate change and its uh, closely related cousin uh, disease. So I think one of the things that the new administration, if, it, if there is a new one, uh, has to take on is kind of rethinking the whole concept of, of, of threat. Uh, there's been no country that's taken us to, to, to our knees economically like this pandemic has. And so I think the notion of national security, you know, all those tanks, planes, and ships haven't done much good against this pandemic. And we've all the people we've lost and what is the, the, finance, the economic ruination. And so I think the new administration needs to think about how to deal with that and, and uh, according to how to organize for it. And um, the, the whole notion of, of, of uh, medical or public health readiness in this country, uh, which to me is a huge national security issue, uh, needs to be dealt with. That kind of a, a, a reshuffling uh, might might cause a, a, a debate about shifting spending priorities within DOD and within the agencies that deal with this. Um, some people think that that kind of reassessment has been long overdue. What's your view on that? Well, I, I think probably that's true. Uh, I think, you know, the um, Department of Defense is, uh, is a is a slow moving ship and it's, it's huge and it's hard to, to uh, change the rudder, change direction. But I think that's something that, uh, again, if there is a new administration, uh, we've got to think about. And whether uh, spending money as, as we traditionally have, which is kind of, you know, it's been a, uh, there's a long tradition here that's uh, hard to break. Whether that's actually serving our national security interests uh, optimally, and uh, so yeah, I think we we need to rethink a lot of things about the way we traditionally invested in weapon systems uh, that haven't done us a lot of good in this pandemic. So let me ask you one last question. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes here, but as I listen to you and I listen to your very clear-eyed analysis of these conditions we face and these threats that we face uh, and the damage that has been done in recent years. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are about the next generation of people who are considering entering public service, entering the military, entering the intelligence community, 
in these conditions because it can't have helped and and um you know we've seen very substantial defections from the civil service and from the foreign service in the course of the past few years as a result of this what would you say to someone who's contemplating going into the ic or any other part of the government right now uh yeah, david that's a great question i uh, before the pandemic i i was uh i'd done a lot of uh, visits to colleges and universities around the country um and that's probably an ulterior motive you know is uh recruit and uh try to engender interest in public service on the part of uh our young people and, and that that is the lifeblood of the intelligence community is, is people and um i was actually uh quite encouraged because without exception whatever institution i visited there was uh always a good turnout and loss of interest by a very very great patriotic young people in in public service so i was actually encouraged and 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 all the other you know dark news of the day that there's still uh, altruism and uh commitment to public service and patriotism on the part of a lot of our young people the one thing i uh spoke about uh a lot was apart from the threats we've already discussed was a phenomenon that the Rand Corporation very clearly uh, cleverly and aptly called truth decay and uh which is a, a phenomenon that predated uh Donald Trump by the way it's a, it's been a problem in this country for about 20 years and this is revolves I mean there's a big fancy definition for it but it revolves around the refusal to rely on and trust facts and data and objective analysis and there are a whole bunch of implications and ramifications for that. And I try to join uh, the younger generation who live on social media, please don't believe everything you see read or hear on the internet. And because that is has engendered a lot of again the clever term truth decay. And uh, I try to get get the the kids to you know consider their own valid sources and figure out their own ways of corroborating what they see reading you. Uh that's uplifting and I and I and I think uh it must be appreciated. Certainly you're spending the time with us is appreciated by me, uh by our listeners. Uh you know, we try to reach out and and get perspectives of of uh folks with experience, but it is very rare to find people who have had both the depth of experience you've had, but also have really truly been leaders uh, in every sense of the word, thought leaders, um, and leaders in terms of the kind of values that we want to see in the government right now, including notably the one you spoke of, which is speaking truth to power, that we need to have that kind of exchange at the top level of the government for it to work. It did when you were there. We are grateful for that, and hopefully um, we'll be able to persuade you to come back. And who knows, maybe one of these conversations, things will be looking better, and, and we'll be able, be able to, to be a little more optimistic. Let's hope so. Well, thanks, David. Thanks, thanks for having these, and, and thanks for, for, for being a champion for uh, uh, truth. And uh, thank you.
Well, th thank you. And, and, and folks, if you want to hear more of uh, discussions like this, go to dsrnetwork.com where you'll see our schedule for weeks to come of this Agenda 2021 series and um, our regular programming. There'll also be uh, uh, other, other uh, uh, things that we're doing, webinars and, 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 and written products and so forth. So go to the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, General Clapper, and everybody please try to stay safe and healthy.